Alabama visiting his family down there. I didn't know if y'all realized, but he is from Alabama, from the south. We don't like southerners up here, but we took him in anyway. Uh, we are in the book of Romans, so if you want to be finding Romans chapter 4, and while you're finding Romans chapter 4, let me remind you that we've asked that next Sunday we have a special offering. Uh, usually this time of year we pay for our building insurance for the whole year because during the winter months utilities double and even triple and so it helps not to have building insurance which is about between five and six thousand dollars a year. That's both locations. It's actually not a bad uh, sum for both locations. And um, so we write that check, but this year we do not have money in the general fund to do that because we've had expenses. We've had unusual high number of repairs and expenses this past summer. And so we need your help. So we're asking that next Sunday, uh, November 24th, uh, we will designate as Double the Tithe Sunday. So if you can help us next Sunday, we'll take care of this thing with, it, uh, with one offering. Some have already given, which I really appreciate that. And uh, we'll make sure it gets to the right place. Romans chapter 4 <laughs> Let me give you my goal today. My goal is to give to you an unshakable assurance of your salvation. Not just to help you be a Christian, but to have assurance that you are a Christian and you will go to heaven. We have looked at Paul's message in Romans 3 and 4 as being righteousness as a gift, as, as a gift that we receive by faith. And we've looked at how he supports that message in chapter 4 by uh, bringing up Abraham, first uh, four or five verses. And he points out, I mean, here's the great patriarch, and he points out how Abraham had a righteousness which was a gift. It says he believed God and it was counted to him. And then he brings up David in Romans 4 verse 6, and he says, look at David. I mean, his life was a mess. And how did he become righteous before God? And he, and he quotes Psalm 32 in Romans 4, 6 and says he, it was counted to him for righteousness. We saw this last Sunday and uh, the, that the word counted is actually a financial term. It means to transfer something. And it's used as an example in Philemon verse 18 where Paul writes to Philemon and says, If this person has wronged you or owes you, then 
count that. Again, logizo, same word Paul uses here, on my account. So what Paul is saying regarding Christ is that our sins have been counted. In other words, we ran up a charge card that American Express wouldn't believe. And we owed, we kept kicking the can down the road, and when Jesus died on the cross, it was counted to him. We did not have to pay for our sins. But it it also talks about, and this is verse 3 and verse 6 of Romans 4, how his righteousness was transferred to us. It was counted to us. So you have this incredible transaction which is legal and commercial. And you have to get it out of the realm to, to grasp the gospel. You have to get it out of the realm of experience. Now that comes later. He'll get to that. Paul will get to that. But at the bottom of it, we would say God has charged or counted my sins over to Jesus. Thus he was crucified and treated guilty. Not because of what he did. Jesus did not sin, nor was he guilty. Amen? I, was, I sinned. I was guilty. But Jesus is the one who was counted guilty. I stand in front of you today only because his right, my sins were counted to him and his righteousness was counted to me. That's why I'm alive, much less a pastor and a minister. To be in a pulpit telling people about God, you better be righteous. But I'm telling you, there's not a preacher in this earth that's qualified to talk about God apart from Jesus Christ. So God has charged my sins to Jesus' account and He has credited or charged His righteousness and riches to my account. That's the essence of the gospel. Now, let's pick that up in Romans 4, verse 23, where Paul says the words... It was counted to him, was not written for his, that is Abraham's sake alone. But, verse 24, but for ours also. In other words, when God counted righteousness to Abraham, he did that not only for Abraham's sake, but for those of us who need the same thing. And it says it was... uh, written not for his sake alone, but for ours also, verse 24. And it will be counted, there it is again, logizo, charged or credited, to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Verse 25. Who was delivered over for our trespasses, raised up for our justification. Now, I'm going to add chapter 5, verse 1 to this. Uh, You you may already know this, but just a reminder, chapter divisions 
did not come in until 500 years ago. Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. Chapter divisions were not part of the inspired scripture. Chapter and verse came in later so people could find certain references. So when, this, when they put this in, uh, realize that Paul is continuing his statement and argument and it's, co- it's cohesive. He says, He was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So here's my outline this morning. One, this is based on verse 25 of chapter 4. He was delivered over for our trespasses. That's one. Number two, he was raised up for our justification or righteousness. That's two. And number three, this results, the result is we now have a peace with God. I want us to look at those three thoughts today. One, he was delivered over for our trespasses. In other words, we, a trespass simply means we, we went over the line. We got outside God's boundaries. And that was a penalty. It was due. God didn't make us pay it. It was a debt we couldn't pay. He transferred it. He was delivered over for our trespasses. He removed the guilt and the condemnation due to me. But now here's the thing. If I have on dirty clothes, worn out, smelly clothes, and you take them all off and put them on someone else, well, that leaves me naked. You don't want that. So what Paul says is, he's delivered over for our trespasses. But now notice, he's raised up for our righteousness. His his resurrection and ascension is the basis of our righteousness. So we not only get our old clothes removed, our old debts removed, but we also get a new set of clothes, a new righteousness. And here's the point. Uh, This is a special note. You can bring that up. Special note. The explanation for our sins being forgiven is in the cross. But the explanation for our righteousness, for our justification, is in His resurrection and exaltation. Are you following me? See, He says, verse 25, He was delivered up for our trespasses and then raised for our justification. So let's put these two together now. How is His resurrection connected to our righteousness? This is not the only place where His resurrection and ascension are connected. Let me give you this verse. John 16, verse 7. Jesus said, 
If I go away, I will send him, that is the Holy Spirit, to you. And when he comes, he will convict or convince the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Then he, he, he expands on that. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. That's the basic sin. You don't believe in Christ. And the Holy Spirit will convict you of that. And then second, he says, verse John 16, 10, concerning righteousness, because I'm going to the Father. What does that mean? What does righteousness have to do with him going to the Father? Well, he's going... He's saying the same thing Paul says here. He was raised for our justification, our righteousness. He goes to the Father on our behalf and it's His righteousness that represents us before the Father. The Holy Spirit, He said, I'm going to send the Spirit. Some will convict of sin because they haven't believed on me, but others I'm going to convince them of righteousness because I'm before the Father. The Holy Spirit has to convince you of your righteousness in Christ just as much as He has to convince the sinner of his unbelief in Christ. Can I get a witness? Can I get an amen? Is the church alive today? This is a good place to say amen, I'm just telling you. Sometimes I appreciate babies crying. At least it's some kind of response. <laughs> he was raised for our justification. Listen to Hebrews 9:24. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, that is, he's talking about the tabernacle, the temple on earth, but he's entered into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Listen to Hebrews 7.23. Former priests in the Old Testament were many in number because they kept dying. They were prevented from death from continuing in office. But he, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus is never, ever going to die again. So he represents us before the Father forever. Therefore, you're the solidarity between you and Christ because you're in covenant with him and you're in union with him and he is your righteousness before the Father and he lives forever, you will be secured forever. Can I get an amen? You don't even have to be a Baptist to appreciate that. <laughs> every Pentecostal ought to appreciate that. Every Methodist, every charismatic, okay, forget it. But you will be, let, let me give you this. Let me give you this. In the Old Testament, the high priest went into the tabernacle, into the presence of God on behalf of the people. Here's the picture of it given in the Old Testament. God did not look on the people to forget. He looked on the priest. And the priest had to be perfect. He couldn't have a physical blemish upon him. 
He couldn't have a mole. He couldn't have a deformity. He couldn't have a growth somewhere. He couldn't have a scar. He had to be a perfect specimen of manhood. And when he went in before the presence of God, he represented Christ. And so he had to bathe so many times before he would go into the Holy of Holies. And he went in dressed in this beautiful robes and he carried on his breast his torso, the breastplate with 12 stones representing the people of Israel. See, he didn't go in on his own behalf. He went in on their behalf. So listen to this verse, Exodus 28, 29. So Aaron will bear the names of the sons of Israel and the breastplate on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them in regular remembrance before the Lord. This is a picture of our high priest Jesus. He goes in and on his heart, he carries the weight. See, the high priest had that breastplate and it was slung over his shoulders. He carried on his shoulders the weight of the stones and they, in the presence of God, those stones would would glitter and brighten up and and reflect the glory. And that shows us Jesus in the presence of God representing us. God did not look on Israel. God looked on their high priest so that to bring them into regular remembrance before the Lord. See, you are no more secure when you've been in heaven a thousand years. You'll be no more secure then than you are right now. Because he is just, he is our representative there before God for us right now as much as he'll be a thousand years from now. And by the way, I was impressed. Uh, Give me that picture of the high priest again. I was impressed by the fact that you see how that, all of this was designed intricately in the book of Exodus. See how that hangs on his shoulders? He carries the weight of his people. People who want the church to grow, and, and, and it should, and we should want it to grow. But we can get so burdened, and people can feel like they carry that burden. I want you to know today, He carries you. You do not carry Him. He bears up your weight. You do not bear up His. And I I say it reverently. Jesus is responsible for us. We are not responsible for Jesus. (laughs) I mean, just just think of a Christianity like that. This is a totally new concept among comparative religions. You will not find anything like it. I was just impressed this week thinking about the fact that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
he goes, he's, ta- he's got Peter, James, and John with him, and he says, uh, stay here and pray that you enter not into temptation. And, and I thought about that verse in Luke twenty two thirty one, where it says, Satan, Peter, Satan's demanded to have you to sift you, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. When he told those disciples to stay and pray, he didn't say, guys, pray for me. I'm about to go to the cross. Pray for me. Jesus didn't say that. He said, better pray for yourself because we're about to go into a test and I don't see how you're ready for it. So you better stay here and pray. But what Jesus did say is, Peter, you're not going to make it through this without failing me. But I have prayed for you that you, your faith, fail not. Aren't you glad that somebody who has God's ear is praying for you? You know, and I I want to be honest with you just for a moment. I try to pray for the church. I have a seven-day schedule of things, subjects that I pray for each one of those days. When I do it, I'm afraid to tell you I don't always do it. I don't pray as often as I should. I don't pray as long as I should. Sometimes, honestly, I don't pray. But I want to tell you, your salvation and security is not dependent upon my prayers for you, but His prayers for you. He prays for you that your faith fail not. Hallelujah. If your security depended on your pastor praying for you, woe is you. (laughs) But it's not. The risen Savior carries you on His shoulders, carries the weight of your life, the problems that you bear, the sins that you commit, that's on Him and He prays for you before the Father in all His 100% acceptance before the Father, representing you and God the Father embraces Him and thus embraces you. We are, Ephesians 1, accepted in the Beloved One. Oh, that's so good. If you are a sinner, that's the best thing you'll ever hear. Now, I say, well, he bore our trespasses or he was delivered over for our trespasses. Second, he was raised for our righteousness or justification. Now, third, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore... Since we've been made righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? We need to make some comments on that. Peace with God. Peace. Prostheos in Greek. Toward God. In the face of God. In the present, full presence of God. Peace. Prostheos. John Bunyan, 
who wrote Pilgrim's Progress uh, next to the Bible is this he wrote it 500 years ago next to the Bible it's still the most printed book in America and when he was disturbed in his conscience about being accepted by God uh, he went through several weeks, even months, of turmoil of heart and conscience. And he writes in his testimony, he says, Walking across a field in my distress, I heard these words come to me. Your righteousness is in heaven. And it suddenly, I saw with the eyes of my soul how Jesus Christ at God's right hand is my righteousness. So that wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, God cannot say of me, will not say of me, your life requires more righteousness for acceptance. For it is there, right in front of him. He writes, I also saw that it was not my good frame of heart, that is, he, he felt good about God. He felt close to God. He said, I saw it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better nor my bad frame of heart that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Christ himself, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8. So that for the believer, every believer in heaven right now, Jesus Christ, the perfect high priest, is before the Father on our behalf. Prostheos, with God. When I was in seminary, we had to translate the Gospel of John, portions of it, from Greek into English. And I remembered, the reason I keep saying prostheon is because I remembered translating the Gospel of John... Another place where prostheon is used, prostheos, before God. It's in John 1.1 where John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, talking about Christ, was prostheos, with God. In the beginning, in the very eternity past, the Word was before in the full presence of and fellowship with God. With God. John 1.1, 1, 1, he's prostheos. Now here it says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace, prostheos. What Christ was to the Father in the beginning, I now have the same kind of relationship of peace that he had. And that's awesome. Now let me remind you, this does not say we have the peace of God. That's a different phrase. 
in Greek and English. Paul mentions the peace of God in Philippians 4, 7 when he says, if you pray about everything, give it over to God, then the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds. This is not the peace of God. That's experienced. You feel it. Subjective. This is peace with God. That's doctrinal. We have peace with God. Period. It's a fact. When we are justified by faith. If you have believed in Christ for your righteousness. If you have abandoned all hope of ever pleasing God or getting to heaven by doing good works and, and trying to balance out the good and bad ledger, you have abandoned that and you have embraced fully Christ as your only hope, your, all, your only righteousness. You have fact, peace in His presence. And it's not something you hope to obtain when you get to heaven. It's something you have right now. It's just, it's just carried over. In Romans 8, verse 33, Paul says, Who will bring any charge against God's elect, God's chosen people? It's God who justifies. That is, He's the one who has acquitted us, declared us righteous. So who is going to condemn? Christ? Well, He's the one who died for us. More than that, He was raised for us and is at the right hand of God interceding for us. So how are we going to be condemned? Who is there to condemn us? The judge of all the earth, the highest supreme court in the land, he's the one who's already pronounced us just and righteous. Is it going to be Christ? How can that be? Because he's the one who's died for us. He went to the cross for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification, not for our condemnation. You may remember that story in Acts chapter 6 and in Acts chapter 7 where it says that uh, Stephen was put on trial. Uh, in Acts 6, 12, they stirred up the people, the first martyr, Stephen, and they brought in the elders and the scribes and they brought him before the Sanhedrin, the council. In Acts 6.13, they set up false witnesses against him. So you have this trial of Stephen. And they ask Stephen, are these true? Or what do you say in defense of yourself? <clears throat> and there's no lawyer there to represent him. And Stephen gives a, the story of the Old Testament. It's in His whole sermon is Acts chapter 7. And at the end... They find him guilty and drag him outside the city and stone him. You had to take him outside the city. Is that, do we have that black and white picture? It's just a rendition of an, that an artist had. But they're stoning him to death. And you've probably heard this story. Just before he dies... 
he looks up into heaven and sees the glory of God and something unique. Usually when you see Jesus in the New Testament after the resurrection, he's sitting at the right hand of God, right? He, uh, he sat because the work is finished, so he's sitting. But here with Stephen, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, I see the heavens opened and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Why is Jesus suddenly standing? He is, yes, he's welcoming him home and I'll tell you something else. Remember, this is a trial. Stephen's on trial. And when the lawyer addresses the court on behalf of the client, the lawyer stands. And Stephen sees Jesus standing up for him on behalf of him. They found him guilty and Jesus is addressing the court on behalf of Stephen and saying he's not guilty. Everything's been paid for. He has my righteousness and therefore... I want to represent him before you, Father, in a way. He didn't say he was standing looking at him. He said he was standing in heaven at the right hand of God. When nobody else will stand up for you, Jesus will stand up for you. By the way, and that's, that's what I want to tell the young people. Jesus is standing up for you. When you're in a trial and you're unpopular and you're rejected and people don't understand, I want you to know Jesus is standing up for you. He'll stand up for you. You ought to stand up for Him. And when Jesus stands, it means the court is listening to Him. The trial of Stephen where they said one thing, Jesus said another. Who do you think the Father is going to listen to? I want, him, I want you to know when I stand before God, I want the Father to listen to Jesus. I, I don't really care what people say because God's going to listen to Jesus about me. And I'll live with that for eternity. Amen. All right, ushers, you come and let's pray together. And let's, if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ... And, and embraced Him as your righteousness, I hope you'll do that this very day. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, You who convicts us of sin, I pray You will also convince us of our righteousness because Jesus has gone to the Father. May He be our hope and stay today. May He be our firm foundation he who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In his name we pray. Let's worship with our giving.